0: Thank you for listening to Literacy Matters. I'm your host, Cheryl Lundy-Swift. Today, I'm here again with Leslie Zoroya, Project Director for Reading Language Arts at Los Angeles County Office of Education. Hello, Leslie. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Well, you know, we started talking a while ago, and we've been putting this series together um, Mm -hmm. called Putting the Pieces Together Building an Effective Literacy System. And last time we were together, we talked about mm-hmm. um, how administrators can really put the system together. And today I'm super excited to talk about how we can support teachers in doing that.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite topics. I love teachers. I'm a teacher. <laughs> I know, so, so
0: am I. I'll never stop being a teacher. No, once a
1: teacher, always a teacher. The bottom line is our teachers need to be the smartest reading person in the room, right? Yes. They need to have every arsenal every tool in their arsenal. They need to have all the research and knowledge about how the brain learns to read and know things like orthographic mapping, how we read in the left hemisphere of our brain, following this very predictable sequence. And this is so important because otherwise we're perpetuating these ineffective strategies that we've been using, things like you know, guessing and memorizing word lists and using pictures. Yeah. Those things activate the right hemisphere of the brain and brain scans of struggling readers have shown over and over and over and over that when you're activating the right hemisphere of the brain it's not following that that pathway in the left hemisphere it's hard to orthographically map words you don't learn patterns you rely on things like memorization and you know the english language is tough you can only memorize so many words so so that's the the main thing i think is train the teachers give them support you know coaching is important and I just feel like if you're a an administrator listening to this, or you're a coach listening to this talk to your teachers, find out what they need find out what they know. Yeah, you know, a lot of times we're not listening to our clients and and my client is teachers. I'm a county office person and so my client is teachers and administrators. And so I really try to listen to them to see what is it that you know already, and what what would you know help you to learn more and to do better. So. So if yeah. I was a teacher right now coming out of this pandemic, the thing I would do is learn everything I could about the science of reading.
0: So when I think about teachers and, you know, obviously the time of time, yeah. teach this work, right? We know they have a finite amount of time. Yeah. And, and most teachers will have what's called a literacy block. Hmm. Elementary, especially. Yeah. Yes. Elementary, especially for sure. How mm-hmm. can teachers maximize That literacy block and before we talk about the literacy block tell like our listeners who might not be teachers, what is a literacy block and then tell us how we can maximize the time there.
1: Well, simply put, I think the literacy block is just usually it's about 90 minutes, uh, usually in the morning because that's when instructional um, support is available. Um, and it's usually a time when reading instruction happens. So it's not necessarily reading for comprehension, especially in the early grades in K-3. It's a lot of when you are using that time to do whole group and small group instruction in reading, how to read.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I when you ask, how do you maximize that time? my The f- very first thing that comes to mind for me is treat it like every moment counts because it does go into a lot of classrooms in my work and there's a lot of sort of lackadaisical time wasting. <laughs> you know, like it's not urgent. We're, and I when I was a teacher, I always had a timer on for different things. And I'd be like, OK, 20 minutes, you got 20 minutes. Get it done. This is doing. And they were like, why are we always in a hurry? <laughs> why are you always timing everything? I timed everything because every moment counts. Our kids are so far behind. This work is so important, and there's no time to waste when it comes to catching up kids, and every second is less time with the kids who need you the most in those lowest groups.
0: Mm.
1: So the second thing I would say so in terms of of uh, how you maximize that time. It's all about planning intentionally and thoroughly being over prepared for each day, having materials ready to go at each station. Kids are going to go to pre reading all the material that you're going to be going through to make sure. What are my English learners going to need in this? Is there additional vocabulary that they are not going to know? Are there scaffolds like pictures or videos I can show to help build up the concept as well as just, you know, the decoding and an actual reading of the words. So that kind of stuff you can't do on the fly. you got to yeah. pre-plan it. And so being really intentional about planning and having your day really lined up, I think, is key. And I think it's the same for our English learners, students with disabilities and our strugglers
0: mm-hmm.
1: when we are not super intentional in planning those and just thinking, oh, I'm just going to give them a graphic organizer. Or I'm going to put them over here. Or I'm going to work with them. Well, what are you going to do with them? Sure. Because those scaffolds need to be really intentional, based on the needs of the kids sitting in front of you. So, just showing a picture, for example, that kid may you know that kid may not need a picture. They already know what that is. Right. So, when we are intentional in the scaffold we provide, it makes such a bigger impact, and it's more efficient. That, that's part of what we try to get to in our training is let's not just be, let's be more effective, but let's be more efficient in the time that we're using yeah. so that we're not wasting time and we're not doing things that are not helping the kid become a better reader and fill skill gaps. The other thing that I think is huge is systems and routines. So I don't know about you, but classrooms that run like this, and like clockwork,
0: mm-hmm.
1: really feel safe. They feel predictable. Kids like the structure of it. They know when the bell rings, I get up, I push in my chair, I go to the next station, I pull out the chair, I gather the materials in the center of the table. All of those things to some people and and I had to learn this the hard way as a reading teacher, because when I first started doing groups with middle school kids, they were like, it was like chaos, it was a total (laughs) circus." But I hadn't taken the time to teach them what my expectation was. And so I, I had to learn. That when you thoroughly invest in the time for teaching routines and procedures in class, then kids don't have to put any energy and and brain power into that. All of their cognitive load is on the content where you yeah. want it to be.
0: Yeah.
1: So we teach teachers make sure you have those routines in place for transitions and signals and who's coming to this group and who's coming to that group.
0: Yeah. And then
1: the last thing I would say about it is these reading strategies that you teach in your reading literacy block can be used in other times of the day. And this is something that was sort of a, oh my God, I never thought of that for some of our teachers that we work with because they were saying, oh, well, you mean I can take that seven step vocabulary routine where we first start with sounding out the word, listening to the word, tapping the syllables, blending the word, doing all of those phonemic awareness activities and all of those decoding strategies First with the new word in social studies. Yes. Then getting to the meaning. It only adds an additional 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And it so exposes them to noticing the patterns in words and concepts. So yes. in social studies, in math, in science. Mm. So what we tell them is, you know, we say, Oh, everybody's a reading teacher in all contents, but I think it we haven't Made that practical for teachers to say, what does that really mean in a social studies lesson if i'm studying you know ancient Greece or ancient Rome with fifth graders. Then, how can I bring in those routines of word learning and multisyllabic decoding and all of that um, in my in my lesson my social studies lesson so that's one of the things that we also talk about.
0: So so speaking of those small groups, how can teachers even leverage small group instruction, which I think is, I think it's really pivotal. It's pivotal.
1: It is the silver bullet that everyone is looking for. People want to know what's the thing we can do that's going to make the big difference and small group instruction is it, especially in elementary. But we have our secondary folks, we tell them to in our secondary version of our training to use small groups as well. And the reason is this, it ensures that reading gaps get filled. You cannot fill individual reading gaps with students in whole group instruction. It just can't happen. There's too many kids sitting in front of you
0: okay. and
1: you have to be able to uh, look at an assessment. So so the first thing in small group instruction, if you're not used to doing it, is having a reliable assessment, a diagnostic assessment, something like BPST or whatever, whatever you use. It just has to be diagnostic. It has to be skill based. Sure, It has to tell you, you know, this kid doesn't know blends. This kid is struggling with syllable types, whatever it is. So that then in that small group time, you gather all the kids who have that same skill deficit and you do a targeted lesson to fill that gap. Yeah. So that's been the one of the most missing pieces in, in reading instruction over the last 30 years when we've been doing balanced literacy. Yeah. We've not had the assessments to, to know how to do that. We've been doing small group instructions, but I don't think we've had diagnostics you know, in front of teachers to be able to identify what is the problem that a student is having sure. and how do we fill that? That reading gap so assessment is the first thing, and then (laughs) this is one of the things that I love talking about with teachers. Small group reading groups small group instruction, you know when you're doing your reading uh, your literacy block is not about group bonding. So don't (laughs) name them the Slytherins and the you know the Gryffindors and the small group in reading instruction is supposed to be fluid. Kids are supposed to move in and out of groups based on the skill deficits they have, so this is not the time to put them into, you know, the bluebirds and the buzzards, because first of all, kids know what bluebirds and buzzards mean, yep. and so don't do that. Instead, do them by colors or something. And I need the red group, and then switch kids in and out of the. If you want to call them something, switch kids in and out of color groups. Because the point of that is really just to gather kids for a few sessions, fill the skill gaps that they're having, and then reassess and see what other problems are coming up now and then then address those. And so we call it, we teach teachers to call it linguistics time. We're going to do linguistics time now, where we study how English works, like all the little pieces. And if we have gaps in how English works, it's going to make us have trouble reading and so everybody has different gaps or things they might not have picked up on and so we're going to we're going to fill those gaps by you know doing this small group work and so you never get stuck in the buzzards all year oh, and.
0: That's right. That's
1: right. You know, because I, I remember being I was in the bluebird group when I was a kid in the 70s <laughs> and uh, yeah everybody knew the difference, and so yeah. if you do it this way, no one knows the difference everyone's doing everybody's moving in and out of groups and we're studying linguistics because that's what we do we normalize it so that's the second thing that i think is really important the third thing is making sure that the materials that you have in your classroom are really solid and what you're doing in those small groups so this is key because you can you can pull a small group and what i've seen some teachers do is just help kids with what the whole group lesson was that is not the intention of small group instruction during the reading block During the reading block, the intention of small group instruction is to fill skill gaps and reinforce skills. It's not to okay we did a graphic organizer around the story as a whole group. Now you're going to come to me and I'm going to help you fill that out. No, that's not what a small group that you can do that in other parts of the day, but not during specific skill instructional time. That's not Uh, what's
0: happening. That is so key, Leslie. I, I can't I think it's one of the most important things that you've said here today because I do <laughs> think that we feel like that that's time to complete what we've done in the no. next lesson. And and that's why I think people are afraid to then bring about a supplemental curriculum, right? Because they yeah. feel like it's one more thing. But I think that's when you not add- one more thing. It's the thing. It's the <laughs> thing. I completely agree. You need to bring that in and 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 uh, that's that's what we specialize yeah. in. So I appreciate you saying that.
1: No, curriculum's huge and you gotta have tools. Yeah. Once our teachers, so some of our, one format of our training is a, is once a month over 10 months. So it takes us a long time to get through the whole Scarborough's reading rope and all the discrete skills. Sure. And teachers start to get frustrated because the as they're learning these new skills and trying to implement them with curriculum that's not written in this format, it's written in a balanced literacy model, not a structured literacy model, they start to get frustrated. And so what we give them is tools and we recommend all kinds of different tools. And we just say, look, there's all kinds of great stuff out there use your knowledge of what you know you need to do through science of reading what this what this research is telling you and then look at the kids in front of you where are the skill gaps that you're seeing and what can this curriculum fill what does your curriculum not have and how can you fill that using a supplemental supplementals are absolutely pivotal you can't do this work without them and whether it's free stuff from scrr and ufly and those kind of sites which there's plenty of stuff there or it's stuff that you go and purchase. There's so many great programs that make it easier for teachers to be able to do this work. And the one thing that I would check for is quality decodables. Mm. So This is another sticky wicket in structured literacy. So the other difference in small group instruction, aside from we don't finish what we did in the whole group lesson, we work on skills. <laughs> the other thing is you have to practice those skills in the context of text. So a lot of folks have hordes of leveled readers, you know, and from balanced literacy, and it's not to say that leveled readers can't be used for other things like comprehension and practice in reading. Mm -hmm. When they should not be used, though, if you're doing a structured literacy model is during reading instruction where you're looking at patterns and syllable types and you know we're studying the TCH sound so. If you've studied the TCH sound, now you need to read some texts and you've done lots of activities and you've talked about it and you've practiced. Now you need to read texts that has lots of examples of that TCH sound in words, in real words. Yeah. And a leveled reader is going to have incidental contact with TCH words and maybe none in a certain passage. Yep. And so it makes no sense to spend all this time teaching a pattern, practicing it, and then going to a leveled reader where they don't get exposure to it. So the point of decodable text is to really get all kind of practice in that discrete skill so that now I don't have a gap. I understand it, I know where it shows up, I know what it means, and I know how to relate it to other words. And so if you if your program that you're looking for does not have quality decodables, find them somewhere because there are there are, there are lots of them out there and they just need to be skill-based decodables. So kids can get that practice. Yeah. There's also a misnomer about that kind of work that it's like boring that people see it as drill and kill. It's so not. Every single primary classroom I have been in over the last two years has been this joyful, exciting, fun. I mean, kids are so excited to learn to read and nothing makes you happier than being proficient at something. Yes. Yes. And so there's another misnomer that science of reading is drudgery and kids don't learn to love reading. It's so not true. I have never experienced that. I think that might've been true in the seventies when I learned to read (laughs) because it was a lot of drill and kill back in those days, but we call it skill and thrill because- I like
0: like that. You said that-
1: (laughs) Yeah, when you have, when you're good at something and you get it, you want to do more of it, right? absolutely. So so that's how we approach it. Orthographic mapping is a term that refers to the process of how your brain can instantly recognize words. And it's different than memorization. So memorization, a lot of times people will give words like the Dolch and Fry list that they send home on flashcards. And they say, oh, these words don't follow patterns. That's really not true. There are predictable sounds and patterns even in the Dolch and Fry word list, And we teachers we show teachers how to do that in our reading training, how to take those lists and reorganize them by sounds and patterns because that's what what people need to learn. So when you orthographically map, you're really just taking words apart. So like when you and I read right now on a piece of paper, we're not looking at every letter and sounding out every word. Our brains scan over the text and it recognizes it instantly because we're proficient readers. But when you listen to a struggling reader, a struggling reader, you can really hear them stumble. It's not fluent, it's not, they don't read with prosody you know, it's expressionless and it just feels halting and like they are reading letter by letter. And that's because they have not orthographically mapped enough words to read with fluency. And the way that we orthographically map is by following that sequence in the left hemisphere in the brain, where we see a letter, we know the sound, we attach the sound to the letter, we blend the sounds, and then we attach it to meaning. And that all happens in different areas of the left hemisphere of your brain. And everybody's brain learns to read the same way if you're learning an alphabetic code, so this might be different for i'm not sure about coded languages like Mandarin and and Asian languages and things like that. i'm not sure how that works, but I do know for alphabetic codes English French Spanish etc that's how your brain processes text and if you have been taught. To do other things like guess look at the picture anything that takes your eyes off the text away from the text. Mm-hmm. is working in your right hemisphere, then, in your visual cortex. Sure. And so you're missing opportunities to for that child to learn to orthographically map the words so that they become instantly recognizable, even if they just started with one one piece of it. And then when you get good at that, add the next piece, which is adding letters and patterns. And then the next piece, which is blends. And then the next piece, you know, it, it doesn't have to be all at once. You don't have to feel overwhelmed by it. So that that's the ad- advice I would give. And then the other thing is don't give up. Um, we were talking about Harry Potter earlier and it popped into my head. <laughs> I love Harry Potter too. Uh, yeah, I have a Harry Potter tattoo on my, on my shoulder. Um, but Harry says in one of the last, uh, Last parts of the book, he says to his professor, who doesn't want to give up a memory about Voldemort. He he's embarrassed by it, and he doesn't want to give up this memory that they need. They need to know what happened in this particular setting, and so he says to him, "Be brave, be brave. Otherwise, all of this is in vain. Otherwise, my mother died for me for nothing. Be brave." And I think of that a lot in this work, because in the current setting that we're in, out in the world, with a lot of negativity and hate and try people outside of education, trying to control education and trying to take out some of the things that our kids need. Um, It scares me. And I think that we have to be brave. We are the professionals who know about this work, who know what to do for kids, and we have to be brave and not give up. And so do something, just anything, start anywhere. This is a real crisis with reading and kids lives are are really at stake if you can't read proficiently, when you leave our system, you are screwed. I mean, there's just no professional way to say that. It's It, it really <laughs> hampers you for life. It in does. what your choice of career, your livelihood, it's our one call. We have to get this right. We have to fix it. And so I would just say, be brave, start small, start somewhere and, and get a buddy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> Do it with someone. <laughs> what, great, what great advice. Well, Leslie, as always, I so enjoyed talking to you. You have, you're just a wealth of knowledge and passion for this work. And I'm excited to know you and excited that our listeners get to hear some great advice.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much.